What is up? I am Evan Lovett, and welcome to my new podcast, In a Minute with Evan Lovett. This is an Odyssey original brought to you by my company, In a Minute Media, coming to you live from my studio in the heart of my favorite city in the world, Los Angeles, California. Let's get into it. Yo, what is up? This is episode number 14. You know where I'm coming from, here in the I Am Studios in the heart of Los Angeles. Let's jump right into the rundown of this week's episode. Gonna start with something I learned this week. I learned about a man named Neil Baker. Let me tell you something about Neil Baker. He might be the most influential person in the restaurant industry ever. I'll explain. And the therapy session is back. I want to talk about dogs. LA is the dog capital of the world. But selfishly speaking, I want to talk about my dog. My firstborn dog, if you will. And the ethical dilemma I've been faced with regarding my dog. I'll get into that one. And lastly, if you're going to do one thing in LA this week, do this. This is classic Los Angeles. And I mean that in the truest sense. It's actually the birthplace of Los Angeles in 1781. This one's going to be good. All right, y'all. Let's get into it. So what I learned this week, I was driving to my wife's family's house in the IE. And we take the 210 to get there. And off the 210, you pass locations of just about every fast food chain on the planet. Most of which, if you've been listening to In a Minute with Evan Lovett, we know come from Los Angeles. But one of those places is a restaurant I haven't frequented, but I'm familiar with. It's called Baker's Drive-Thru. Now you see this off freeways. They were smart. Like most chains, they're within about a half mile of a freeway off-ramp. And this chain is beloved in the Inland Empire. There are 39 locations. And it's best known, perhaps, as the first of the dual kitchen concept restaurants. It was the original restaurant with one kitchen for burgers, fries, all the basic fast food stuff, and a separate kitchen for tacos, burritos, Mexican-inspired items. And it opened in 1952. The first location was 1952, which also makes it one of the oldest fast food chains. But that's not what I learned. Now, I was curious about it, and I was possibly going to do an episode about it. Because like I said, this thing has a, has a following, pretty big following. So I did my research, and in doing so, I learned about Neil Baker, the founder. And even though Baker's only has those 39 locations, Neil Baker is responsible for about 100,000 other restaurants. And again, he's probably the most influential person in the history of the restaurant industry. Let me explain. So Neil Baker was born in San Bernardino in the 1920s. And he was blind in his right eye. And because of that, he couldn't go off to fight in World War II like his friends. I remember at the time, patriotism was real. People were volunteering. People were, you know, wanting to go to war. This was a source of pride. And he felt terrible. But he wanted to contribute. So he did it by building infrastructure back home with his hands. He became a carpenter and a builder, and he opened up an adobe brickyard with his friend Glenn Bell in 1946. Remember that name. 
And Neil Baker was known as, I'm not kidding, one of the best brick makers in California during the 1940s. I mean, I in my research, newspapers.com, I'm checking the San Bernardino Sun. It talks about him as this esteemed brick maker, right? So as the war was finishing mid-40s and his friends were coming back home, a couple of his friends, a pair of brothers specifically, asked for his help. He's a handy guy, right? They, they wanted his help moving a hexagonal building called the Airdrome. It was their father's building. And this Airdrome was at the Monrovia Airport. They wanted to move it to Route 66 in San Bernardino. Now, his friends, these men whose building he helped move, were named Maurice and Dick McDonald. Name sound familiar? Well, these McDonald brothers turned the Airdrome building into something called McDonald's Barbecue, which was mildly successful until they stopped serving barbecue, at which point it became McDonald's and he became wildly successful. And the rest is history for McDonald's in no small part due to Neil Baker. But we're just beginning this Neil Baker story. Buckle up. So remember Glenn Bell, Neil Baker's friend, opened the brick brick uh, making facility with Neil Baker. Neil and Glenn would often meet their other buddies at McDonald's, dreaming of a bigger future, sipping on a milkshake, having a burger. And they'd see this crowd flocking to the McDonald's hamburger stand. Nonstop people getting fries, sacks of burgers, milkshakes. And Glenn Bell was inspired, okay? By 1948, he left the brickyard. He wanted to open his own hamburger stand. San Bernardino, across from a place called Meatlaw Cafe, which, by the way, is still open today, and it's awesome. I, j- I just went there. And Glenn Bell's hamburger stand called Bell's Burgers, well, he needed somebody to build it. So his buddy, the contractor, the handyman, the builder, Neil Baker, was who he reached out to. So Neil Baker helped him open this, this Bell's Burgers. And he was watching Bell's Burger become a mild success. And Glenn Bell, again, needed Neil Baker's help. And he wanted, he's like, I need to hire some employees. So he had Neil Baker write some help wanted ads and do the hiring. Neil Baker helped Glenn Bell hire a man named Ed Hackbarth. Once again, keep that name in mind because it's going to come into play for us in a little bit. But by 1952... Neil Baker saw his close friends, the McDonald brothers, Glenn Bell, succeeding in the fast food business. This was a new industry, really, right? Cars are just starting to permeate. You guys have heard me talk about this dozens of times. And finally, Neil Baker decided to try his own hand in the fast food industry. So less than one mile from the McDonald brothers location and three miles from Glenn Bell, Baker built his own restaurant, called it Baker's Burgers. His wife, Carol, was an interior designer and they worked as a team to create the image in the restaurant and they served hamburgers, drinks, fries, the typical stuff. And it was a success. By 1955, Bakers opened their second location with more to follow. But for right now, it's important to circle back to Baker's friend, Glenn Bell. Now, Bell's Burgers was nothing special. It was mildly successful again. That was the second one that made Neil Baker finally say, let me do this for for myself. But Glenn Bell was tired of seeing lines around the corner across the street at that Meat Law Cafe 
Why were there these lines? Because Meatloaf was serving something called tacos dorados. In English, that's hard shell tacos. This was a new concept. Again, tacos were basically a new concept. This is 1950s, right? And Glenn Bell went over there one day to try these tacos, and he figured he could make his own, but for the American palate. So Bell went, went to work in his kitchen, figured out a taco recipe based on these Meatloaf Cafe tacos, and in 1962, opened a place called Taco Bell directly because of Neil Baker. And as Glenn Bell's taco business began to boom and the McDonald's hamburger stand was adding location after location. By this point, it was owned by Ray Kroc. It was going, going wild. Neil decided to try his hand at what would be a first in the food industry. Two cuisines in one location, two kitchens. He opened a twin kitchen bakers in Rialto. One kitchen for burgers and the other for the Mexican fare. And to this day, this is the longest running bakers in existence. Who did he hire to manage that location? A man named John Gallardi. And John Gallardi learned under Baker, saw the multiple cuisines, saw the business, was no doubt inspired by the success. And, you know, in that lineage now, you had McDonald's, you had Taco Bell. And Gallardi was learning. So in 1961, he spotted an opening in the fast food landscape. There were no hot dog restaurants. So Gallardi now, who had worked for Neil Baker, opened his own restaurant chain, Der Wiener Schnitzel. Again, because of what he learned from Neil Baker. But we're not done. Remember Ed Hackbarth? Told you to remember that name? Manager of Bell's Burgers, hired by Neil Baker. Well, by 1964, he also wanted to branch out on his own. He set up shop way out in Yermo. Took a little knowledge from Baker, who... He wanted to open a burger stand. Little knowledge from Bell. He'd also sell tacos. And he opened a place, again, in Yermo, called Casa Del Taco, which was soon shortened to Del Taco. So let's take stock. Right now, we have McDonald's, Taco Bell, Baker's, Schnitzel, and Del Taco, all under the Neil Baker lineage. This is amazing. But I'm still not finished. In 1966, a contractor named Dick Noggle was installing equipment in a newly fashioned Baker's Burgers. He's impressed with the layout, was impressed with the business, and he immediately wanted to invest. But Neil Baker wasn't looking for investors. He was still connected with Hackbarth, so he sent Noggle out to Yermo, where Noggle and Hackbarth partnered up. Noggle was one of the first franchisees of Del Taco, but he wanted more. In 1970, he went out on his own and he started Noggles, a fast food Mexican restaurant chain that existed from 1970 to 1995. And Noggles was big. They had 250 locations in the greater Los Angeles Inland Empire area. And they ended up merging with Del Taco. Now, as for Neil Baker, his friends' empires grew nationally and internationally, but Baker remained content in San Bernardino. He just wanted to run his regional chain, but perhaps because of his eye, perhaps because he was also claustrophobic, he had a fear of flying. So he just stayed in San Bernardino and grew out Baker's. But Baker's legacy wouldn't be complete without mentioning that it was Baker who invented Taco Tuesday. Yes, in 1976, 
he figured out that his Taco Friday promotion that he'd run for the previous eight years, which was a great deal, five tacos for 75 cents, maybe the alliteration of Tuesday, Taco Tuesday, would have been better. So he rolled that out. This is almost 50 years ago. And now where there's controversy on who invented it, the fact is Neil Baker was running a Taco Tuesday campaign in 1976. Talk about a visionary. And ahead of the curve, Baker also created a vegetarian menu for bakers that same year. This is 1976, way before Impossible, way before Beyond Meat, before Morningstar patties, before vegetarian was really a thing like it, like it is now. And that vegetarian menu still lives on at Baker's at a fast food chain. I mean, guys, come on. And Neil passed away in 2008. His wife, Carol, remained as the president through 2017. And today, their son, their, sorry, not their son, their nephew, Jason Talley, helms Baker's as they continue the legacy. But Neil Baker is definitely a titan, not just of fast food history, but of restaurant history. And that is what I learned this week. Okay, so now the therapy session is back. This is one that's been affecting me for a while. Check this out. I've been unable to sleep recently. It's not stress. It's not a medical condition. It's not even like I'm up all night thinking. No, it's because my dog, our firstborn in air quotes, Bams, he has a medical condition. It's, it's kind of like a form of being senile, right? He, he's up all night, and I'm going to get into details, but the thing is he's 14 years old, right? He's essentially a 98-year-old man. But this is a tough situation for all of us at home. As soon as the lights go off at night, usually 11, 11.30, he starts barking. Not a crazy loud bark. Like a woof, woof. Like a... Where am I? It's a disoriented and kind of disorienting bark, right? Short, abrupt, erratic. And the thing is, when we go out and cuddle with him, he stops, right? So he's disoriented, doesn't know where he is, and we comfort him, right? And one of us usually go out and lay with him, maybe even fall asleep. But he'll just wake up in an hour and the cycle starts again. And we've been medicating him, Benadryl, muscle relaxer, CBD, nothing really works. So we're dealing with it. Struggling with our sleep, giving them TLC, and going through our sleep-deprived days. But here's the most interesting part and the ethical dilemma. And I know you love pets. Your dog, your cat. I mean, this is the city of pets. Los Angeles is the dog capital of the world. Let me veer off for a second and tell you why. Listen to this. There are 5.3 million dogs in Los Angeles, more than any other city. LA has the most dog-friendly restaurants in the United States. And I found this interesting. For thousands of years, the indigenous native people in Los Angeles, Tongva Gabrielino, they hunted land animals along with their dogs. This is 10,000 years ago. The dogs ate it in the hunt right here in what is now Los Angeles. And they were companions on this land. And by 1872, the city of Los Angeles had almost as many dogs as people. So... Los Angeles loves dogs, okay? And I love my dog, Bams. And in 2016, I was told Bams only had 18 months to live. He wasn't acting right. At this point, he was only seven. He's a middle-aged dog. Appetite issues. 
felt a bump on his side. And sure enough, it was cancer, right? My vet, our vet, Dr. Cox, she's amazing. Does fantastic work. She had him surgery. It was a mast cell tumor, stage four, pretty serious stuff. She did a surgery. It was huge. It was traumatic for my son, who was three at that point, to see this wound stitching up the side of him, uh, drainage on the wound. It was He was so sad. It was crazy, right? But even with that huge surgery wound, you need follow-up, right? And we ended up going to this doctor. I don't want to mention the name, but not much bedside manner. And they essentially said it'll be $25,000 and a regimen of chemotherapy and radiation to potentially give this dog 18 years, 18 months. I'm sorry. Forget quality of life. This is just to get him to 18 months. And man, faced with that $25,000 for your beloved dog. And yes, I have a kid. Kid is number one, obviously, over a dog. But again, like I said, it was our firstborn. And eventually, I'm going to get into how much BAMS has meant to my actual marriage. It's crazy, but it's the truth. But twenty five grand is no small matter, especially you do need to realize at some point even dog lovers, are you with me? Listen, like it is a dog and I say, I'll do anything for him, but that's a big number, right? So call my wife. We share, shed some tears together. Call my parents who are still alive at the time. <laughs> and my mom's and my mom, who was a huge animal person, member of PETA, she gave like 50 different animal organizations. She was like, we'll pay for it. They don't have that kind of money. She's like, we'll pay for it. 25,000. Stu, we're going we're gonna to pay for it, right? He's like, oh, hold on. No. So, but they were like, do whatever it takes. But we have to be pragmatic. And again, with the kid, kids are expensive. Life is expensive. You know, I, I discussed this, especially cost of living in LA, right? So it, it feels like an ultimatum. And, you know, it was a tough decision. And I, I bring this to you because... How many of you have been given an ultimatum with your pet, with your baby, your, your pet baby, that is. And how many of you have had to make a decision like this? And even if you haven't, what would you do? There's no guarantee of quality of life. 18 months seems like such a short time anyway. I mean, do you just say no and watch him suffer? Do you roll the dice? And truthfully, I made the call not to. We were just, we talked to other vets. Of course, I went online and it was like, look, he's going to be hating life with the chemo radiation just have him go naturally and seven years later he's alive and kicking bams is still here and again he has other problems he's had eye surgeries and you know now with this senile thing sundown syndrome i think it's called but somehow that cancer knock on wood has stayed away and you know i, I mean it's almost like this and this is that ethical dilemma right at what point is the trust there. You trust your vet and I trust mine. And I've now taken Pam's to my vet for this new condition a few times, hence getting these prescription stuff. And like, again, nothing's working. So you're like, I don't know, does it work? And in this case, it was a specialist who you haven't built a relationship with. And I'll never forget it. This unnamed facility, the doctor who saw my dog came into the room with this wounded dog, sewed up dog with a motorcycle helmet. And he just was like, yeah, he needs the chemo. He needs the radiation, like no warmth. Veterinarians are usually like, do, 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 to, you know what I mean? Like, and that was part of the reason that, you know, 
things happen for a reason. That's where I was like, maybe we just don't do it. I didn't trust this guy. And I really want to know what you would have done or what you do and what you do now in my situation. Because again, I'm not sleep. I'm sleeping two hours at a time. My wife, luckily my son doesn't get up, but man, it's an issue and you never want to blame bams and you don't want to make him, you know, he's still doing everything else. I mean, he's got a limp and he's an old dog, but he's eating, he's pooping. He's trying to walk. He's happy when we get home. I mean, what do you do both about the ethical dilemma now? I mean, DM me, shoot me a line. I'm going to post this as a story. I need this feedback. <sighs> Dog lovers, cat lovers, pet lovers. I know you feel the same way. This is the reason for this therapy session. I just needed to talk about what was going on. And you know what? I'm kind of happy that he keeps, keeps me up at night. Because seven years ago when I was told that he has 18 months to live, this is seven years later. And he's still around and we're still cuddling. So love you, Bams. Thanks for letting me talk this one out. Lastly, if you're going to do one thing in LA this week, do this. Go to the birthplace of Los Angeles. I'm talking about La Placita, Alvera Street. Now, some may say Alvera Street is a tourist trap, a monument to cultural appropriation, it's been called. But man, I did some homework, talked to some people, and most importantly, my in-laws, whenever we come out to LA, and these are natives of Wanusco, Zacatecas. Whenever they come to see us in LA, we meet at Alvera Street because they like it. They enjoy it. They enjoy the food, Cielito Lindo, all those places. So it's seen by many as a celebration of Latino culture with some serious depth of history dating back to the literal Pobladores, the 44 people that founded Los Angeles. And this is a very important monument to Los Angeles. And it's fun. It's a good way to spend a day. It really is. I'll tell you why it's important, though. So this is roughly the center of the oldest part of downtown Los Angeles. And it is the birthplace of Los Angeles, but it's the birthplace of the modern Los Angeles. When the Pobladores came out here, 1781, this was the area, that Overa Street area, the plaza is where they settled. The first, you know, post Tongva Gabrieleno in Los Angeles. Now, when you're in Alvera Street, what's cool is you see this. It's like a row of bricks that are different color. You don't notice it unless you're looking for it, right? And I didn't notice till the last time I went. But what that traces is called the Zanja Madre, which is the mother ditch, okay? Built in the 1780s. As soon as they moved in, that you need water, right? And the LA River is a thing. You got it, but you got to irrigate. You got to get water. It was a canal built by LA's first settlers to bring water from the LA River to this brand new village that ended up becoming Los Angeles. So this Zanja Madre is the heart of the founding of Los Angeles because without water, as we know all too well, there is no Los Angeles. So that's right there, there at Olvera Street. You are walking on history. You're walking at the, on the first like man-made water resource for Los Angeles, okay? So after all that developed, then the early 1800s, and Los Angeles was mostly the home at this point of like ranchero families who dominated the towns, uh, you know, cattle ranchers, stuff like that. And Francisco Avila was one of them. He's a wealthy cattle rancher and a native of Sinaloa. 
And he was twice mayor or alcalde of the Mexican Los Angeles, right? So what you have there in Alvera Street is the Avila Adobe, named after Francisco Avila. And it's one of the oldest buildings. In fact, it's the oldest existing house in the city, built in 1818. And this is in Olvera Street. And like, don't get me wrong. There are trinkets, tchotchkes. There's some stuff you can buy. There's a tourist element. There is, right? But this is real history. And again, within Los Angeles, just the paradox of everything we are, the city of the future that kind of bulldozes the past, but the past is there when you are looking at it. And Olvera Street is where it is. And listen, listen, there's more, there's more. So the street itself, Olvera Street, it was laid and officially named in 1858. So it's one of the oldest streets in the city, right? And don't forget, Los Angeles now, per the United States, officially became a city in 1850, 1851. But the street was laid in 1858, right? And they weren't doing streets. We're talking about like paved or brick, cobblestone streets, right? And it's also one of the shortest. It's not even a tenth of a mile, but it's important. Even back then, it was known as Wine Street. You know why? Because it was filled with Italians and Italian vintners who used to make wine. Don't forget one of my Elliot Minute episodes, Los Angeles is wine country. And it really was one of the most important wine countries in the United States back then. But, and this is all happening. This is all in Alvera Street. And remember the Avila Adobe that I just told you about? Well, it still has grapevines. You'll see it. So all you need to do is look up. This is, again, all in Alvera Street. All this is not on Alvera Street. Alvera Street. And the grapevines at the Avila Adobe are the oldest in California. How cool is that, right? And we know California, Sonoma, Napa, Yountville, all this wine country. Well, the oldest grapes in California are at the Avila Adobe on Alvera Street. Now, these grapes were first grown at the San Gabriel Mission, found in 1771, but it's an original vine, and that was planted with the Avila Adobe in 1818, so that's pretty cool. So who's Alvera? Why is it called Alvera Street? Why did it change from wine to Alvera Street? In 1877, it was renamed in honor of Augustine Olvera, who was a judge that fought for Alta California in the Mexican-American War. And he was also elected as L.A. County's first judge in 1850 and ended up becoming supervisor in 1855. So they named the street after him. Very, very interesting. Okay. But what ended up happening as the city developed and, you know, Los Angeles, we've gone over and over it, that so many different directions, different times and downtown has had its ups and downs. So by the early 20th century, Alvera Street fell into disarray, right? So did the Avila Adobe. Stuff just wasn't being taken care of. There were, you know, transients, things like that. And the 26 structures there at the time were ticketed for demolition. Enter Christine Sterling. So she was like a wealthy philanthropist, socialist type. And she was disappointed in what had become of the Avila Adobe. She had a, a recognition of the history of it. But she was somebody who was sort of an opportunist, even though I guess her heart was in the right place. She was also somebody who came up with something called China City. Uh, so th there's a little bit of an asterisk with her. And when the story of Alvera Street is told, some people kind of look at the Christine Sterling issue as like, okay, is she really the godmother of Alvera Street as we know it? Kind of, yes. But like, anyway, that's for its own episode. That is an episode. But she saw this dilapidated Villa Adobe and she made a sales pitch to the city and she knew everybody again, socialite, philanthropist. 
She wanted it to be a Mexican marketplace replete with vendors and musicians in ethnic garb. Okay, that's her quote. And she persuaded the LA Times owner at the time, Harry Chandler, to contribute and build what is now Alvera Street, right? So again, it is authentic. It is historic. But this is where you get that cultural misappropriation narrative, which you're kind of like, I, I, I don't I don't know. I don't, I, I know I love it and it's fun and like, but recognize all this is interesting, but here's, what's even funnier. And this is another good piece of history is after Sterling convinced uh, Harry Chandler to build it and it's getting built. Well, it was built with prison labor that was provided by the chief of the LAPD at the time, Charlie Davis and Charlie Davis's nickname was, I kid you not two guns because he'd carry two guns. So Alvera Street was open to the public on Easter Sunday in 1930. And what began as a make-believe Mexican marketplace kind of morphed into a true celebration of Latino culture in Los Angeles. And the meaning of Alvera Street has changed over the years. And what I guess you could call a, quote, delusional fabrication. Again, that's a quote. It's now been largely accepted as the symbolic center of Mexican culture in Los Angeles. And that is why you should go to Alvera Street this week. And that is episode 14. That one was fun, man. I hope you enjoyed it. Thank you for listening. Again, it really means a lot if you leave a five-star rating or even a review. All that stuff helps. We are continuing to grow, and it's exciting for me just to see the numbers every week. So thank you. I genuinely appreciate everybody that listens. And I wish you all the best. Enjoy Los Angeles. Enjoy life. Enjoy In a Minute with Evan Lovett. All right, y'all. It's been a minute.